This is a Federal News Network podcast. Wildfires and forest fires have become almost a year-round phenomenon. It can't continue, so the U.S. Forest Service has a new strategy aimed at protecting homes and towns in danger and for the resilience of woodlands themselves. Forest Service Program Manager Brian Farabee joins me now with the details. Mr. Farabee, good to have you on. Good morning, Tom. How are you? All right. So this has been an ongoing concern, I guess, just the number of wildfires. Let's begin at the beginning. Is it fair to say they have become much more year-round rather than a seasonal type of phenomenon? Yes, that's correct, Tom. We have traditionally used to see a fire season, May to September, October, but now we're essentially seeing wildfires throughout the entire year. So we definitely have moved from a fire season to a fire year. And with that phenomenon, then, it's not just forest land that is being wrecked, but increasingly we see on the headlines and watch the uh, newscasts that it's towns and houses and real property also that's taking the brunt. Correct. The situation that we're facing, we really look at it as an all-lands issue. We're seeing our national forests. We're seeing private land forests. We're seeing communities all affected in a very negative way in many respects from the wildfire situation we're experiencing currently. All right. So for the Forest Service now, there's a new 10-year strategy. And let's begin with what lands can you deal with as the Forest Service, because a lot of these start on state lands and maybe even on private property. So can the Forest Service kind of help with land that is not directly under Forest Service management? Yes, we can. We partner with a, a whole host of partners to really address what I would say the agency feels is an all-lands issue. And so we work closely with private landowners, with other federal agencies, with state agencies, as well as with NGOs to really look at how to address this wildfire situation. I was going to say the Park Service has got to be part of this because a lot of your lands are contiguous to Park Service lands too, aren't they? Absolutely. They have some of the same concerns that we would have. And would that also include the Bureau of Land Management, where, you know, they've got lands in different parts. I mean, there's, it's all over the place. But are some of their areas forested also that would be of danger to the leasing and, and so on operations? Yes. So with Department of Interior, not only are they concerned about their forested lands, but they're also concerned about their rangelands, which are also being impacted from wildfire. Sure. Ranges can burn, uh, like grasslands burn as well as forests, Correct. Correct. All right, so tell us what's in the 10-year strategy. What is it you have developed here? So the 10-year strategy really acknowledges a little bit about what we just talked about. It realizes and acknowledges that, you know, over a quarter of the contiguous United States is in high to moderate condition when it comes to wildfire. And that really is devastating communities, destroying resources, affecting jobs, as well as threatening infrastructure. And so the 10-year strategy acknowledges that and acknowledges that that will continue as we continue to see accumulating fuels, as we continue to see climate change, and as we continue to see these wildland urban interfaces continue to be developed. And so it tells us in order to have a paradigm shift, we need to look at really treating a significant amount of more acres than we currently have in the past. And we need to do it in a way that's scientifically founded. And so we're using science as a foundational piece to help us determine where we go and how we lay out those projects designs in order to mitigate impacts from wildfire. And you can't really do anything about the climate directly, but the fuels issue is a big one, and that gets to how forest lands are managed, doesn't it? Absolutely. Right now, we treat somewhere between two to three million acres a year, and the strategy suggests over 10-year period, we would need to treat an additional 
2 million acres a year. So we'd be looking at treating between four and 5 million acres a year in order to really change the trajectory of wildfire. And that's just on national forest system lands. When we go and incorporate other federal lands, states, tribal, and private lands like you and I just spoke about, that is an additional 30 million acres that need to be treated. Yeah, that's a tall order. We're speaking with Brian Farabee. He's a program manager at the U.S. Forest Service. And when you say treat acreage, what does that actually entail? It entails things such as prescribed burning, mechanical thinning, commercial timber sales. You know, every tool that we have in our toolbox, we would use in order to really treat the vegetation to reduce fuels. And, you know, we do it as an agency. We do it with our partners. And we also contract work out as well. And so here again, there's a whole host of ways of which we would actually be able to deliver on the work. Is there a challenge in that some areas love their trees so much that they love every tree too much and they don't like thinning because you have to remove some trees and cut them down in order to spare the other trees or at least mitigate the danger? Is that something you run into? Social acceptance of the work we do is a critical piece of actually the work. And so many people live in forests as well as visit the national forest because they love forested areas. And so when we start to talk about treating the landscape, removing trees, removing brush. There is this relationship that many of our publics have with that land. And so having conversations to help them understand actually treating the land actually helps it in the long term is work that we do have to do. But there are definitely members of our society that absolutely love their trees. And by the way, does the Forest Service staff itself go in and do the work on your lands or do you hire contractors or can volunteers even help? You know, so, Tom, we have crews ourselves that do the work. We also contract that work out as well as we use agreements and we work with a number of different private entities to do the work. And we use volunteers to do the work. And by the way, while you're at it, do you get to some of the invasive vines that are, I mean, you drive around Washington, D.C., you wonder if there's ever going to be any forests left when you see those vines twisting around all the trees. So a part of our treatment plan has to be maintenance. And when we get to the maintenance side, you really do have to think about invasive and noxious weeds that could come in to that site if you don't take and treat them. And what is the uh, value? I've read that wildfires and forest fires have been happening long before mankind started moving in nearby and into the forests and that they actually in some ways benefit the forest in the long term. And how do you know what's a good fire and what's a fire you don't want to have? A low-intensity wildfire, a fire like many of the vegetative communities evolved with over hundreds of years, is really what you like. It stimulates growth. It doesn't create severity and burn off seed sources and the soil itself, but it actually allows for regeneration, as opposed to some of the wildfires that we're seeing now, where they're so severe that they really not only burn all the trees off, but they burn the seed source as well as they remove soil from erosion that takes place after a fire, and really you're essentially starting over in that landscape. Yeah, so that is a hotter fire, in other words, and a more lengthy fire than would occur naturally if man hadn't been changing the way the forests kind of bear themselves. Very much more, a much hotter fire, and what we're trying to mitigate by actually putting fire back on the landscape, but in a condition that won't create that kind of severity. So getting back to the strategy, you have written this and you have noted that another 30 million acres a year needs to be treated beyond half of the land that the Forest Service needs to get to that you can get to. So 35, 36 million acres. 
what does the plan say to how to get to that level? Because it seems like the state and local partners would need to be part of this. So it'll really take a coalition of partners to really address this work. And what we've done is we've gone back and looked at the fire history in some of these landscapes. And we looked at where we have significant infrastructure and where that interface could possibly take place. And what we're seeing is that 80% of the exposure on the landscape on national forests is in really 10% of that forested type. And so if we can focus in those areas, we really believe we can make a difference and mitigate impacts to communities and values that many of the American public care about. But absolutely, we'll have to do it with a coalition of partners. And by the way, you know, most of the wildfires seem to be in the West, in California, and just the generally West in the United States. What is it about the East that doesn't seem to invite this phenomenon so much? The East has had a rich history of using prescribed fire on the landscape. And that tradition and that history is kind of embedded and born in the culture. It's accepting a prescribed fire. It's used to wildfire. And as a result, you see those ecological conditions in much better state, if you will, than some of our places out west. Interesting. They used to let us burn leaves in the fall, but now you can't because of the air pollution. (laughs) Yeah, there's definitely a lot of things you have to uh, pay attention to. when you're actually uh, engaging in using using fire. Yeah, it's a big balancing act, isn't it, the whole process? Correct. Brian Farabee is a program manager at the U.S. Forest Service. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom, for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to the strategy at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect 
as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.